nobody has perfect parents. Some people have great parents and some people have terrible parents, but everybody has some degree of imperfection in the parenting they had. And so they had needs which were not met. And they take those unmet needs, those unmet child needs into their adult relationships, looking to get them met by their partner. Hello and welcome to the Biology of Business. I'm Kate and today we have the absolute pleasure of being joined by Sorrel Pinder, who is an osteopath that's transitioned to become a relationship coach. Good afternoon and welcome, Sorrel. Hi, Kate. It's lovely to be here. So, Sorrel, you have a very, very unique journey, having worked in health as an osteopath and then having transitioned to become a relationship coach. Um, can you just describe to the listener a little bit about how that experience and that transition has come about? Yeah, so actually it goes back to 2007 when a friend of mine developed ME and I remembered from my training mention of a, doc, of a Ray Perrin who was an osteopath in Manchester who had developed a protocol for people with ME. And I trained with Ray and went on to treat hundreds of people with ME. Um, and during that time, I started to realise that a lot of my patients, and it wasn't just the ME patients, it was also some of the people with back pain or whatever, were just going back and doing the same things that had got the mill in the first place. And we're finding it really difficult to, I mean, particularly for people with ME, about as around boundaries. So it's like, do we have to say no? And to say, you just say, oh, I could ask for help. Like, I don't have to cook an entire Christmas dinner for 20 people all on my own. And I'm speaking about a particular person when I say that. Um, and so I got to a point, and this is after I left my ex-husband, when I thought I'd like to do some coach training. But then trained, first of all, as an NLP practitioner, and then went on to do further coach training with a view to actually working with the mental health aspects and the boundaries aspect of those of those patients that I've been really struggling to kind of move forward. Um, and then from there, started working more broadly with people who, did, who didn't come as patients. They weren't coming for, for any kind of osteopathic treatment. They were coming purely for the coaching. And so I went through a phase of doing more kind of mental health-based coaching and then more recently moved into relationship coaching and, and left the osteopathy behind because I, I quit that last April. So something that we're obviously going to be talking about is the impact or the relationship between relationships and your health. Because whilst in many ways, practitioners are getting perhaps a little bit braver in terms of asking about diet or sleep and other things that might be slightly outside the typical MSK remit, but obviously affect our health. Very rarely do I encounter somebody who just as part of the course of their practice, asks people about their relationships or even allow space for that conversation to, to come up. But there's such a big part of our life, it's quite clear that relationships will have a big impact on our health and well-being. Absolutely. And I would, I would not recommend people studying start saying, and so how's your marriage then? <laughs> because when someone's come into your clinic because they've they've got back pain or hip pain or something, they're not expecting that. However, you can say things like, what is support at home like for you? Or could you ask your other half 
to take over some of these responsibilities while you get better. And so then you can start to just kind of get a feel. And it is actually part of a feeling thing. So there'll be some words and then there'll be the body language and the tone of voice. And all of those things will give you an indication as to what state of that relationship is like. But you cannot go barging in there saying, well, is your is your husband beating up at night? I mean, simply you can't say things like that, can you? Obviously not. Um, so you've got to be very careful, very gingerly about it and let and then listen. And I think this is the thing that we talked about before, Kate, is the absolute vital importance of listening without anything else on your mind. And that's quite a skill and it takes practice to be able to sit, sit there, not thinking about your next question or what advice you might give them or whether they're just getting everything very wrong and just listening. Now, I can certainly remember and I brought it up with another guests that as a junior physio, I would be terrified of information being shared with me that I didn't know how to handle. Yes. And I think that's always going to be true for somebody who's new. And the most important thing to do at that stage in your career or any stage really is to be able to signpost. So to have some phone numbers of people you can refer them on to. So for say somebody does come and tell you that they're suffering domestic violence, to know the number for the local women's shelter, for instance. Or if if you want to be able to refer people for counselling, to have some either some numbers or at least the BACP website address or something that you can because otherwise if they're going to give you some information and you've got nothing to offer them, not even signposting, then you are actually quite you are kind of letting them down. And also it doesn't feel good for the practitioner when they can't offer something. Mm-hmm. Now, what, what I know you've mentioned previously to me that one of the skills you can use or one of the tools you can use is asking the, the person what it is they would like to happen. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I know a, a few times in practice, and I can remember one case in particular, and I was working, I think I was probably working on this lady's neck because I visualized myself sitting at the end of the couch, but I can't be sure what I was doing. And whatever I was doing, it was very gentle because she was an older lady and she just started sobbing, really sobbing. And it wasn't the first time somebody had cried in my room, but they usually did that sitting in the chair. I think it might have been the first time it happened on the couch. And I just said, oh, um, would you like me to carry on or shall I stop? And she said, no, it's fine. Just carry on, please. Um, and, I'm ha- and I think she actually said, I think I'm having a somato-emotional re- release. So she, she kind of knew what was happening anyway. But it's really important to, to just say to that person, if they do start, if they're on the couch and they start sobbing, which does happen sometimes, what would you like me to do? rather than assuming that you know what they'd want you to do or that you assume that they that that there is a right thing to do because the right thing is what your patient or your client wants you to do. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's really interesting. So recognizing the right thing is what the person you're holding the space for would like you to do rather than what yeah. you're assuming or presuming they would like you to do, which is actually coming from quite an arrogant place, really. Yes, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And actually that word, you know, holding space, that's what you're there for. You're there to hold space. And it's a privilege and honor for someone to feel so safe 
that they start sobbing on your couch or in your client chair. Yes. Mm. Yeah. That they they feel comfortable enough to open up. Yes. So, Cyril, coming round to the relationships, what constitutes a healthy relationship and an unhealthy relationship? (laughs) Why does it have such an impact on our health? Oh, it's difficult to know where to start, isn't it? Shall I start with the unhealthy relationship? Mm. And actually, I'll start with the impact on health because I think that's the most relevant thing here. So, okay, if I take my own example, I was in a very difficult marriage for about 20-something years. And before I ever met him, to be fair, I developed irritable bowel syndrome. So, but, and that that probably came out of the previous rather dodgy relationship and possibly my childhood and the fact that I went to boarding school. So it's all kind of stacked up in the past, as it were. Um, but in that relationship, I had dreadful mental health. I had really serious depression. I was medicated for a bit. Um, I should say really serious. I was never hospitalized, but I did have depression. And and the IBS kind of came and went in a rather irritating fashion. Um, and I was just always tired. I was always tired. And my daughter she said to me, Mum, you're just tired all the time. And after I left him and was on my own for a bit, and I said, Mum, you're just not tired anymore, are you? And I thought, no, I'm not. So that was maybe the most obvious thing. Um, and so, yeah, of course... An unhealthy relationship is really stressful, and we all know about the impact of stress on the body. I mean, I don't, I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast is going to be able to say, oh, yes, I know about the effects of stress on the body. And uh, so at the most basic level, it's just, it's the fight-flight response or the freeze response. And interestingly, for most, most of the people that most of your listeners will see, will, if they've got any kind of stress response, it's probably going to be fight or flight. For some of the people I saw who had ME, they'd kind of gone into freeze. So they could barely get out of bed. They were completely flattened. And you might see that as well. You might see people who can, you know, they kind of come in the car, they get dropped off, they can't hardly climb any stairs. And it's worth considering whether they're in that freeze part of a stress response. Um, I seem to have lost my... I feel like I've got to into something, but I know there's a bit more. So... We were mentioning about the elements of what constitutes an unhealthy relationship. You described the sort yeah. of chronic stress that you're living with. And what might that look like at home? Will somebody perhaps be walking on eggshells, nervous to say yeah. anything in case there's a reaction? Will it be control will they be being very controlled? Will they be scared to spend five pounds on a cup of coffee and a flapjack? Because yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. They, they, it could be being scared to spend money in that. So, you you know, you've got the things we were familiar with in terms of physical violence, but there's also financial abuse and emotional abuse. Um, so I can remember my ex saying, well, you're a rubbish osteopath, aren't you? Um, and the best thing, to you know, for me was to say, well, I, he doesn't know what he's talking about. But nonetheless, it's, it's not a good relationship if someone's telling you that you're crap at what you do for a living. Um and so you're going to get people who, I was, a, I was an arguer. So I was probably more in fighting than anything some of the time, but then some of the time I would withdraw. And so you're going to get people who argue a lot, people who withdraw, people who, and these days scrolling has become an excellent form of withdrawal, which we wouldn't have seen 20 years ago, or even 10 years ago. Um, so there, there's kind of, diff, I guess there's different degrees, isn't there? There's a sort of lower end where it's just kind of 
how would you put it? Um, there's no serious abuse, but the relationship is kind of full of tension and they're not meeting each other right through to this full-blown abuse. So you're describing that there might just well be just a general conflict. Um, yeah. Six or one and a half a dozen of the other potentially is what you're describing as well. Um, it, it's, I think, what, I guess it's the thin end of the word, isn't it? But the point is, if you're the osteopath treating a patient whose relationship is not brilliant, you are not really there to, to talk about their relationship unless they bring it up. Mm. But you are there to notice what effect it's having on their body and possibly to talk about them, talk to them, sorry, about the relationship between stress and their health and possibly encourage them to consider if it's safe for them to do so what they can do to lessen that stress. So what's the point at which people um, need to leave or choose to leave versus choose to try and repair their relationship once they understand that that's potentially the source of their health problems or a significant contributor to their health problems? I think that's an incredibly individual thing. Um you know, if there are no children involved, you'd maybe go a lot earlier than if there are. Because I know I've met a lot of women now who wait till their children finish school, which yeah. is what I did. Um, had I not had any children, it might have been a lot sooner. But then on the other hand, there's a degree of, you know, if you don't feel safe, if you really don't feel safe, you're probably going to take make that break earlier. Or... You could go to a couples therapist and see and see whether it's possible. But you could both want to repair the relationship. If one of you doesn't want to repair it, there's really no point, is there? Mm. Um. So I'm very aware that whilst we're talking about the impact of relationships on health and what the practitioner might need to be aware of in terms of the people coming to seek then for help there will be potentially people listening who are thinking well they're a practitioner in their relationship yeah. not great and causing them stress and maybe they're working 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 to sort of escape or hide oh, yeah and th yeah that's going to be something that comes up is people who are very rarely at home because they can't bear to be around the, their spouse or their partner and they spend long hours at the clinic seeing a lot more patients than is really good for anybody. Um, I hate to, I hate it when I have to see somebody right at the end of the day and I'm tired and I'm not even in a difficult relationship anymore. So. <laughs> and so it's worth thinking about the impact it's having. And of course, if you're not at home at all or you're, you know, you kind of get home at half past nine and you grab a bite to eat and then you go to bed. Or perhaps you go in front, of, sit in front of the television so that you don't have to communicate with anybody. Then you're not dealing with a problem. Mm. So, and I know how tempting it is because of exactly what I did to withdraw into your own world and have as little to do with your other half as you can. But it's not really a marriage, then, is it, or a relationship? Sort of a cohabitation. It's just kind of kind of cohabitation. Yes, exactly. And sometimes quite a hard, you know, difficult cohabitation where you're not 
It's not like having a housemate who you kind of vaguely get on with. You can choose. And I think the other thing to bear in mind is that, you know, if you're the principal of a clinic, you might have a fabulous relationship with your other half. But what about the, the your associates who are working with you? And do they feel safe to talk? If they, you know, if they feel the need, do they feel safe to talk to you about what's going on for them? Because, of course, it can be impacting on, it, it isn't bound to impact on our work at some level. So how do people get into these unhealthy relationships in the first place? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> I think we all knew the answer to that. We would choose better. Well, do you know what? The interesting thing is that I think in some way we do know the answer to that question. So generally speaking, what happens is that nobody's ever perfectly parented, are they? Nobody has perfect parents. Some people have great parents and some people have terrible parents, but everybody has some degree of imperfection in the parenting they had. And so they had needs which were not met. And they take those unmet needs, those unmet child needs into their adult relationships looking to get them met by their partner. So it's funny, yesterday I was in a networking meeting and I used the example of um, a therapist called Mark Tyrrell who once said, an angry professor is no more intelligent than a three-year-old. Well, most of us actually go into our relationships as that angry professor, except that we're not even a professor, most of us. <laughs> um, and we're taking in that three-year-old level of because we're angry. And at the beginning, of course, it's fine, isn't it? You meet somebody, you fall in love, it's all kind of happy and fun and great times. And then you get to the point when you come out of that honeymoon phase and you start to see the things about them you don't really like and... And the things that are not happening for you, which you want so much to happen, and then you get angry. Mm. And in a way, you might even say it's like you are. I don't, I'm going to say this not that I necessarily believe it, but it's a way of seeing it that you've got the anger from your past, from what your parents didn't give you, because your needs weren't being met. And you don't really answer, you don't answer what's going on. No, but no, but no, most of us do not realise what's happening. We just think, well. He's a bit of an arsehole, isn't he? And we get angry. <laughs> and, and then when you start to understand what you need to do for yourself in order to be able to meet your own needs and be there for yourself and not expect your partner to be doing all of that work for you, and if it goes in, you know, both ways, then you stand a chance of repairing the relationship. So if I've understood that correctly, um. Unhealthy relationships are, uh, are we getting to unhealthy relationships as an expression of our unmet needs from childhood? Yeah. Needs from childhood. Yeah. Um, and if the two parties are willing, because mm -hmm. both people are going to be bringing this to the yeah. role, two sets of unmet needs, two sets of anger, two sets of conflict. Yeah. And if both parties are willing to do their personal repair work and give the other person space to do that, then a healthy relationship might well be possible to evolve. But I think what you're also describing is it's perhaps better to have had the self-awareness to pick up on some of this stuff earlier in life, which is a lot to ask of an 18, 19, 20-something-year-old. 
Yeah, definitely. It's interesting though, because for many of us, we have a relationship and it comes to an end and then we start another one. And then maybe by the time we get to having children, we might be on the third relationship. So if we'd done some of that work before we got to the one where there were children, it would have made life a whole lot easier. And I, you know, I, I can see that I was 62 when I met my partner and he was just nearly 60. And we'd both had that period of time alone where we could start to unpick what had gone wrong in our previous relationships and what we, and it was really about understanding that everything I need is in here. And I don't know, for me, it was like learning to accept stuff that I didn't really like very much. I think, well, okay, I can live with that because the payoff is is totally worth it. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking about little things. I mean, he smokes. Mm-hmm. I've never been with someone who smoked before, apart from the very first one, actually, when I was 18. <laughs> I was thinking, well, why is it such a big deal if he smokes? He doesn't smoke in my house. He's he, He's got his own place. He's, we still live separately. Um, I could accept that he's a a little bit of a smoker, it's not, it's not massive, that's way less important than what I get from him. Mm. And I think, you know, and, it, and he also did a huge amount of work. Um, it's just about kind of also like, you know, just figuring out what it means to love somebody. What does it mean to love somebody? Yeah, what does it mean? Yeah. It's funny that, I mean, I would say it's, it is partly about that acceptance and that doesn't mean accepting things which are so you've got to know where your boundaries are you've got to know what the deal breakers are and then accepting the stuff which is you know okay within that those boundaries and just being i don't know kind and not taking the piss out of somebody because they've got some weird quirks Mm. Um, being listening actually probably listening is a big thing so being able to give of yourself rather than just take I think is what you're also describing yes yes knowing that it's coming back of course because it's not one way street and then there's these so the funny thing is I've been doing some couple therapy training with an American guy called Terry Real um and he talks about the five losing strategies. And the first one is having to be right all the time. Like, do you know what? I I put my hands up to that. It's taken me a long time to recognize I can't possibly always be right. That's nonsense. Unless he goes and need to prove that I'm right or to you know impose my my view of the world on somebody else. But it, it's it's been amazing because once you start recognizing that you actually might be wrong sometimes, <laughs> you can listen to other people's perspectives. <laughs> what are the other interesting strategies? Oh, so that's the first one. The second one is needing to be in control and trying to control your other half. And as Terry Real says, you can't control anyone unless you coerce them. And if you're doing it to that degree, you probably should be in prison. That's a bit extreme, but yeah, trying to so that it, it also invo- includes indirect forms of control. So, like, um, um, 
withdrawing something that you would normally give in order to get them to do something you want them to do. So I, w I won't cook your dinner until you, whatever. Um, that's the second one. Oh, can I remember the right order? Own walling, what can you make me think of? Withdrawing communication. So well, can we, can we, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's kind of a form of control, isn't it? When you shut down like that. Withdrawing itself is, is the last one. Retaliation. I can't remember what the other one is. Um, I've got a little kind of PDF, actually, which I'm happy to, if anyone's interested in it, I can give you a link. I recently watched that. I, I watched that film very recently, Gaslight. Um, oh, yes. this film and where the chap plays the most awful mind games. Yes. And that's where the expression gaslighting comes from, apparently. That's all. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, yeah. So what does a healthy relationship look like then, Sorrel? So we're talking about really the horrible parts of the unhealthy not. relationship. And yes, living in that environment is going to cause you stress. Chronic stress is going to cause yeah, you, is going to impact your health if you do it for a long time. And as a practitioner, as a practice owner, you've got the opportunity to think about yourself, about your team and the people coming in through your door. Yeah. And I think what you're describing is really holding the space to listen and then... yeah resources and the confidence to ask what would you like to happen next but, but what would a healthy relationship look like because everybody listening i don't think yeah. we had well even if they're in a healthy relationship now we'll be cringing remembering the you know something when they were 19 or from the past it, yeah no i think we can assess as i thought we did when we were 19 <laughs> so i'd say okay the first thing in a healthy relationship is that you recognize that you take care of your own needs for the most part. Obviously, there'll be some things you like. I don't like going on holiday on my own. I'd much rather go with my partner. And if I, if he says, Oh, I don't really, he did actually say this once, I, I don't know if I really want to go on holiday. And I, I thought, What? And then I understood, came to understand why he didn't want to go on holiday because that was his previous experience. And I said, Well, you know, you'd be doing me a huge favour if you came with me. It would be a gift. And so I could have said, fine, okay, I'll just go on my own. But for me, it was really important to have him with me. But for most of my needs, I get make sure they get met. Like I make sure I eat properly and I get enough sleep. It's up to me to say, I need to go to bed now. Which may seem, to, actually that seems to me to be quite basic, but I know for a lot of people, they, they just kind of hang around waiting until... Everyone turns off the lights, kind of thing. The way so, it's not actually managing yourself at all. Yeah, not managing yourself. No. Um, so that's one thing. And the other thing, actually, which is really important, which I think is probably true on both sides, is not complaining, but just asking. I mean, how many times have we said, oh, um, why can't you take the bins out on time? As a person saying, could you please make sure that the bins are out there before the bin men came come at seven o'clock or whatever? So maybe out of complaining, because no one likes to listen to complaints. But they often will happily respond to requests. Which seems so ordinary and so basic and yet so hard to do. Except it isn't really yet hard to do. Um and and in a way, the key thing about all of these things, I mean, there are the like little skills, if you like, 
But the key thing is that you're keeping the relationship as the kind of the focus. So it's not about me and it's not about him. It's about our relationship. And so I'm always happy if, if, I, if I know that there are things that I will let go of, things I will give up, things that I will do which I wouldn't really do because it's going to keep my relationship in good health. So in a way, a healthy relationship is about actually focusing on a healthy relationship. Mm, but you're also describing two healthy people who are, who are self-managing. and Oh, absolutely. Yes. You're describing yes. basically to have a healthy relationship, you've got to grow up, you've got to know yourself yeah. when you go to bed on time and look after yourself to be able to be part of a healthy relationship. And the funny thing is that everything you need isn't here. You might need some help with accessing that. So for instance, with some of my clients, I'll do some inner child work to help them to help them kind of heal the, the, those early childhood wounds or hurts. But everything, it comes from them, it's not coming from me. I'm just guiding them. Yeah. So like, and this is going to be as relevant for working in an MSK clinic as anything. We are self-healing organisms. And as, a, as an osteopath or a physio or whatever, you, we would all accept that we're facilitating that self-healing mechanism. And the same is true for psychological and emotional healing. It's, it comes from inside. It's just that most people don't recognize that. And actually, Kate, one thing I would say is, which is really key for me, is when I did the coach training and I came across this notion of innate wellness, innate well-being, and that we are self-healing, it suddenly landed for me in a way it hadn't before. And I'd be sitting in my in my clinic with a patient thinking, yeah, of course you'll heal because you're a self-healing mechanism. And then they did. Whereas before that, I think because I, I doubted A, whether they could heal or B, whether I could help them in that process, they didn't as much. So I suppose it's partly about in terms of the actual MSK process, healing process, having that faith that belief in your patient's ability to heal and secondly having that faith in their ability to heal their relationship or or whatever's going on for them up here in in their mind or in their heart mm. so it, it is really having what you're describing a lot of courage as a practitioner to get out of the way really yes actually yes to support and facilitate the person's healing in whatever yeah. way that's presenting. Yeah. Not to overly impose or interfere or with that process. I mean, clearly you're going to do something. Unless you're a real sort of cranial type practitioner who's incredibly light touch. But I, I think for me, as an osteopath, and I only really realized this quite recently. I benefited from the fact that I'm quite a sensitive person. So my palpation was possibly better than average. I don't know. How can you tell what average is? But it was good. And so I was always listening to what the patient's body was doing. With my, was listening with my body. And so it's, 
if anyone out there listening to this thinks, oh, I'm just too sensitive, you know, my, I'm so cross that my T-shirt labels always itch <laughs> or whatever. Um, just be aware that sensitivity gives you that superpower and you can tune into your patient's body and you can probably more easily tune into the, what's going on in, for them emotionally and know that you get you kind of get that, I can't think of a word for it, it's a sort of two-way communication thing, even though, so it's happening, sorry, I am really losing my way here. It's like where trees communicate with one another. Yes. Uh, There is a phrase for it, which I can't remember right now. (laughs) Trees do the same without, you know, if I yawn, you're going to yawn. If I laugh, you might laugh. Yes, exactly. Um, There is a a an unspoken communication as well. I mean, it's it's, it's the basis of rapport, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. So something you often touch on is boarding schools. And we've already mentioned that our childhood experience and our unmet needs in childhood can, uh, well, will, not even can, will manifest later yeah. in life. You're hiding from that. Um, and how we're parented and how we're schooled are going to impact that. And you often, yes, you often talk about boarding school experience, Sorrel, and how boarding school survivor i think is the term you use yes yeah that that was a phrase coined by nick duffel who himself was went to boarding school uh he wrote a book called the making of them something about british ruling class i can't remember the subtitle um and i i came across nick duffel's work well, my daughter was 13, so that would make me about 49 at the time. Um, and I'd never sort of thought about it that way before. But, you know, if you go to school as a, as a day school and you get bullied, you get to go home at the end of the day, unless your home is, is really unsafe, in which case you're probably no better off than I was. But when you're a boarding school, you're there, it's 24-7. Um, in fact, it's been put on a par with prisons and, and psychiatric um, institutions as a total institution. And the one I went to even provided our underwear to start with. Even? They even provided our underwear. Watch the school did. Yes. In 1969, I went to boarding school. They pro- we had school-issue underwear. So yeah, very much just like a prison. Strip off and now you're an inmate. It almost. She is though. We must have had to take... I don't recall that bit of it. But we must have done. Yeah. And every hour of your day is scheduled. You know, your free time, you have a bit of free time, but it's like where you can spend it and what you can do. So, but that, that separation from your family, from your pets and your toys. And actually, I went to boarding school and I did not take my teddy bear with me because I thought it would be you know, you wouldn't. And as it turned out, at my school, which is a girls' school, you could have a teddy, and so my mum sent it to me in the post. My my partner, who went to a boys' boarding school, you didn't know when he took a teddy. So you separated yourself from every little bit of kindness or love or anything to do with home. But, of course, you get to go home in the holidays. So it's, you know... Actually, one of the things I do remember, 
which is a bit off piece here, but I do remember a girl at my school who was a few years younger than me and it was the last day of term. We were all sat around with our suitcases waiting to get picked up by our parents and she was crying. And someone said, why is she crying? And another girl said, because she knows she has to come back here at the end of the holidays. And that kind of encapsulates what, what the experience was like. So anyway, the point of all of this boarding school stuff is that you learn survival strategies. In Nick Duffel, the guy who wrote The Making of Them, talks about a strategic survival personality. So it's almost to the point that you have, you have a whole kind of cluster of survival strategies that constitute your character, your personality. And then you take it into adult life and you either end up like our government who went to Eton, say no more, or you end up, as I did, needing to be right all the time and needing to be in control and ju just rubbish at relationships because those strategies don't work in adult life and they don't work in relationships. And so that may be true for boarding school experience, but it's also true for the things that happen in childhood as well. So we come out of childhood with a, a kind of a, a set of survival strategies that enabled us to survive our childhood, particularly if it was traumatic, and we bring them into adult life and they don't work. And hence we end up with a loss. I think something like almost 50% of marriages end in divorce. It's pretty high in this country. Mm. You know, I didn't go to boarding school, but do you know something I'm always really grateful of when listening to you talk about this experience is we used to swim with a swimming club that was in a different county just mm -hmm. because of the nights that Cubs, Brownies and all the other things went on. Our local swimming club, my mum couldn't fit it into the schedule, so we went to the one happened to be, we were on the county mm -hmm. border, happened to be in the next county. So we had a completely different world of friends. Nobody at our swimming club did we go, my brother and I go to school with. Ah, and so often it was just an escape, it was just another world. You had a whole other community, a whole other sphere mm -hmm. to, to be in without the sort of social pressures of, of school and conformity and, and, and all of that. So, and, and I can't imagine, yes, when you're describing boarding school, you just don't have the opportunity to have another world on them. No, you're right. Or whatever it is. No, you don't. I, interestingly, I had one friend from my primary school, um, and we stayed friends until I think they moved away before I finished um, secondary school. But I lost touch with all my other primary school friends. So all of my friends were boarding school friends, and they lived all over the country. So, you, you know, you couldn't hang out with your friends on the holidays because they were, I have one in Chatham and there was one in Reading that I forget where they all live, but um, I one down in Sussex. Yeah. So now as a relationship coach, Sorrel, you host um, workshops and conversations that people can join in, listen in to uh, understand their own relationship patterns, I'm guessing, and figure out how they can create a, Healthy, yeah. alive for themselves. So, actually, starting two weeks today, I've got the first of a series of conversations. Um, and the kind of broad focus is on how we heal from trauma in relationships. Um, 
Although I think some of them are going to diverge a bit from that. Some of them will be more about how we heal from relationships, which have been disastrous for us. Um, and the first, so the first one is at lunchtime on October the 18th. And then they're going to be happening every one, one or two weeks between now and Christmas, I hope. I'm still in the process of scheduling them all. But I'll, I could give you a link okay, uh, so people want to links. check it out. Okay. And yeah, I will, I'm planning to run run a workshop again soon i ran i ran one in june which um went down went went down really well but i got the recording all wrong so i couldn't use it which is a bit irritating i forgot to put it on speak of you <laughs> and your posts on linkedin sorrel if you are interested in this i really recommend following sorrel on linkedin because you punch hard on linkedin <laughs> not hold back you absolutely get the tone or the issue or the pain spot on and I, I, I really think you're very you're not beige you're not gray I'm no beige. I'm not beige I do you know what I used to be it's so funny I used to be the shy retiring unconfident young woman and I would always be a bit terribly careful about what the words I chose and what I said and now I just I don't pull my punches anymore because by the time you get to my stage in life, if you can't say what you believe to be true, then we, really what's the point? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm glad you enjoy reading my stuff. Okay, I really do. <laughs> very much. You do. I admire your courage very much. Thank you very much for joining me today, Cheryl. And thank you very much for sharing your insights and experience on the relationship between relationships on our health and well-being. Mm, thank you. It's been a pleasure. 